Welcome to Jar of Encouragement. I'm violinist Mary Young and I'm going to be asking Christian musicians difficult questions. Oh hi, thanks for coming back. Today I'm talking to Gerard Leferve, who is the founder and director of King's Chamber Orchestra and he's also an amazing cellist. Um, so this is Gerard Leferve or Gerard Lefever. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I quite enjoy that whole thing that I um I go into a I don't know, a bank or whatever in Jersey and they say, And what is your name? And I say, Well, it's Gerard, but I don't know how to pronounce my second name. And because in Jersey for a generation they said Lefever. But that isn't right because I've got some ancestors who moved to Canada and started a chocolate factory. Le somethings chocolates, Le Ferves chocolates, if you like. And they made a sign outside it that told people how to pronounce it. And it wasn't Lefevre. So we know that in the 1920s, they didn't oh. say Lefevre. It's not as yeah. romantic as Lefevre, which is a good name for a musician. <laughs> yeah. So um, just to introduce you, Gerard is the director of King's Chamber Orchestra and is a amazing cellist who's played internationally solos with orchestras. Um, what, would you, what would you introduce yourself as, like, if people say, what do you do? Well, you know, we had a marvellous cellist that played with us for years and years and years called Joe Garcia, and she was always the first person at the end of a concert to pick up a broom. And <laughs> I think I really see my role less as kind of like, oh, by the way, I'm the director, you know, as the servant that enables the ship to, you know, to go on, really. And I have to do absolutely everything, but I do it willingly. Uh, and... Mm. That's the thing about the arts, uh, you know, the arts are very misunderstood and you've got to throw yourself heart and soul into it. Gerald's phone's ringing. My phone is ringing. (laughs) It was the only thing that I thought not to block. I don't know why I didn't think of that. How hilarious. Yeah. Um, So I was going to ask you if you have anything in your room that you could um, tell us about that's interesting. Um... Actually, I've got a few things, but um, on, um, on on the wall behind me, uh, is, you can't quite see it. Actually, I can lift it up and show you, show you Mary. Well, they, oh, I can see it, yeah. You can see good. it. Everyone else but, can't see it. But... Um, in between the guitar and a violin on the wall is the little uh, house that you and the orchestra gave me, full of little notes of thanks. And it's the house oh. from Up, from the film Up where the old guy lived in the house and he got all the balloons and then he went on this incredible adventure. So there's a great deal of symbol symbolism in that. Um, you know, by our, our thanks and our prayers and our hopes and our dreams, we are kind of lifted up and we go off on an adventure. That's the orchestra as a whole. So I feel like that's a wonderful symbol. But also on the wall, just underneath that, is a little swallow. It's a ceramic swallow that my oldest daughter, Katie, who plays with Casio, gave me, um, which she got in Denmark. It's very beautiful. And it reminds me of the swallow from the story of the Happy Prince, which we've performed a few times. And I wrote music. Mm. And it's an Oscar Wilde story. And it's a parable about God's, um, in a way, his, his outworking in our lives that changes our priorities and turns them upside down and at the end of the story, he says, bring me the most precious things in the city. And the two things they bring him are the the sort of like broken people who've given their all to serve. And that would be the ethos of KCO. Uh, hmm. You know, we don't go to be prestigious and to earn money, but it is actually, uh, you know, to earn a fortune. We, we, uh, we have to survive, but we... Um, we're not in it for the prestige, although we do, I don't know how we've achieved it or, you know, somehow God's business, but we, we are a proper professional group that plays to a very high standard, but we're not snobby about that or it's not something we have as like an idol or anything. The most important thing, like in that parable, the happy prince, is that our heart's in the right place. So that little swallow just sits on the wall reminding me, hope your heart's in the right place today, Gerard. Hmm, that's really nice yeah. yeah do you remember how like how we met <laughs> well I remember the first time I talked to you do you because you phoned me up yes yeah I phoned you up well the thing is periodically I don't do it all the time but periodically I'm asking around for people do you know anyone you know who's a really good player 
who's um, interested in the sort of things we do, Heart for God, Christian community, working differently. Mm. Um, and of course, people fall into different categories. And um, sometimes we we welcome someone who is on a journey and isn't really too far there with the way they're thinking about life, but they're interested and they've decided they're interested. But you um, came as a kind of a done deal. <laughs> you were did a Christian. You were, yeah, you did. You were a strong Christian and you were a marvellous mm. player, so I was immediately interested in you. I didn't have a clue when we first met that you were so gifted in so many areas and that you'd bring so much to the orchestra and be such a... Um, <laughs> I would say, Mary, you're somebody that has helped us form our heart as a group. Like you brought with you a, how do I describe that? A, a sort of ethos of thanksgiving and thanking people. And that's been really lovely, you know. So there we go. <laughs> oh, but, nice. but, you know, yeah, I didn't so, know all of that. I just asked around. Somebody gave me your name. I rang you. What did, do, you remember, yeah, what do you remember about I'm, that conversation? Yeah, so I remember that um, I just got a phone call and it was you. And you said, um, oh, hello, I'm the... I don't know exactly what you said. You said the director of King's Chamber Orchestra or something. Yeah, yeah. And you said you had this amazing orchestra that everyone was like really, really great players. And um, and I think I felt like, oh no, I might not be good enough to do that. Oh. But actually, I did know what KCO was already. So in my mind, it was like quite a high up thing. And like a lot of people that I knew sort of wanted to, to play in that orchestra. Um, so I think I said, I didn't want you to think that I was as amazing as all the people that you said were in the orchestra in case I wasn't. So I said, um, oh, I don't really do that very much or something. Basically, and then you said, oh, well, um, maybe it's not for you. Um, oh, no. Um, and I was like, no, I really want to do it. Um, but so eventually I came. But I basically tried to convince you not to have me for some reason. I don't know why. I'm starting to but... remember that now. And I'm thinking... You know, not everybody's world is a chamber orchestra. There are not many chamber orchestras out there, and um, and we are unusual. And many people might panic when they bump into us and think, "Oh, I haven't got any experience with this." And it is a different way to play, to play as a team. You know, to blend your sound, to work together, and so on. But you know, people come in, and we soon know if they're able to do that and acquire that skill, and so on. And that's you know. Quite honestly, we don't reject people. I mean, if somebody comes in and that's not necessarily the route for their life, we still want to help them, bless them, love them, you know, whatever. Um, and that we do have a floating population. But mm. I didn't know at that point that I rang you that we were going to get to the point and we were going to be going for, you know, 30 years, goodness me, plus, um, and mm. that we were going to get to the point where we needed a core group who were all very committed to helping with the organisation Otherwise, we couldn't mm. go on, and that you would be one of those people. So you're you are a bullseye. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to? Could you tell me something about like your, um, maybe your younger years, and like how just anything like um, your journey to faith, or how you've been involved in music, um, how you came to become a cellist, mm. that kind of thing. Anything you want to say about that? Um, I'm going to say something different, differently from what I've said anywhere else. I think um, when I was a kid, I was very feisty and adventurous. I was full of ideas and got into trouble quite a lot at school. Although, actually, I was very good at hatching ideas for the whole class to do. And I didn't always get into trouble for them myself. But um, they, I was sort of loved, in a way, by the, the adventurous crowd. And not necessarily appreciated by people that just wanted to get their heads down and do the job and, you know, and not rock the boat. Um, but And so I had this this sort of adventure. My parents were both extremely characterful and they were divorced when I was very young. And I think I just fought my way into life. And then I found music, which sort of subconsciously was a great salve to any pain that I felt over, you know, not having mum and dad together or all this kind of thing. Um, and so I threw my heart and soul into it, really, when I found the cello. I started quite late in primary school, but I did have a musician in the family, and this was my mum's mum, my grandma, and she gave me everything. And I was very undisciplined, but gradually she influenced me so that I did some regular practice and then 
the better I got, the more that became the thing. And then so I really... Because, so, so what, because you said you started a bit late in primary school, what age did you start? I think I must have been, you know, nine or something like that. Um, oh. I mean, well, that's not that late, but it's not six and four, like lots of Suzuki people start and so on. And hmm. um, But so I remember I had the lesson with two other people and they gave up and after a time. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to give up. And it's gradually dawned on me that I really loved it. And um, so my grandmother helped me tremendously. She didn't play the cello. She sang and played the piano a tiny bit gave me lessons and everything she could do and so on and so and I, I was sometimes I was self-taught because we didn't always have a teacher on the island but somehow I made it into the National Youth Orchestra and then that, from there I got really good lessons with with people which, which they arranged and that was amazing. Um, so like because you said sometimes you were self-taught yeah. that sounds quite unusual for a classical musician who's actually really amazing and <laughs> um, so what did like, did you have, like, long periods with no lessons, or...? I did grade five with a wonderful teacher called Eric Speak, and then he left the island, and I didn't do another exam. To, I did grade eight next, but I, I actually can't remember how long it took me, perhaps a year and a half or something, uh, between that and that. And I did that on my own with my grandma testing me on the scales. So, and I'm, I actually oh. did grade eight cello and piano together. So I had one exam and immediately the other exam. And I I started the piano even later. I didn't start till I was, I think, 12 or something. But so that was like huge, like fast progress, too fast, actually. But um, I remember in my cello exam thinking that I really screwed it up and really, really, really screwed it up. And I had no idea because I had no teacher. I had nobody to compare myself to. And... I came out of the exam and my poor grandma had to put up with me. I cried for three days. I thought it was an absolute mm. disaster. Um, and it's quite interesting when you're only comparing yourself to yourself and who you would like, you know, you want to be the best. You realise that you weren't the best. So I, I'm in another circumstance, I might have been feeling, oh, I think I'm doing quite well compared to so-and-so. But I didn't have that. I just was... I listened to Jacqueline Dupre and then I listened to myself and I thought I was rubbish. So I thought I'd actually mm. failed. And actually, not that I want to, you know, it's not to, to be proud about it, but I, when my result came out, I think I had the highest mark in the country and I, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. But it was all wow. dawning on me that this was my life and I loved it so yeah. passionately. Oh, dear me. And my grandma so was very faithful. She prayed for me relentlessly yeah hmm. so yeah that so <laughs> you taught yourself from grade five to grade eight with your grandma's help but she mm. wasn't a cellist was she no, no. and she just knew music and then I and got then... into NYO having I suppose I got grade eight and I I they gave me a proper teacher Florence Uton and she thought I was absolutely a mess of, of positions mm. and you know how to do the thing properly from the point of view of your muscles so mm. she absolutely took me back to the beginning and found it very hard. Um, mm. Did she Did she give you, like, because I know a lot of teachers, and I've had this as well, say, I'll teach you if you do this. What's it like to prove that? <laughs> oh, I see. No, actually, um, Ivy Dixon, the director of the National Youth Orchestra, really, really believed in me. My goodness, did she believe in me. And so she arranged for me to do interviews and stuff like that. And I won a full scholarship to a boarding school for my level years. So I was like really suddenly leaving Jersey and woof, you know, uh, and it was, and from there I got lessons at the Royal Academy every Saturday morning with Florence Hooten. And she took me on this gruelling journey for two years to sort my playing out. And um, I don't know how, whether she felt that I got there, but after two years, I auditioned for the Royal Academy and I won a scholarship. So she certainly took me on quite a journey. Um, mm. hmm. How did you find... Um, so that was, was that for the like senior college, you mean, yes, not the junior yeah. one? Um, how did you find that experience of music college? Did you enjoy it? or? Um, <laughs> do you know, if, if I'm honest, with my chaotic childhood and lack of discipline... I still wasn't in the mode where I was going to knuckle down and really practice and get the job done to the full extent. But I wasn't too bad. I certainly did some practice. But I think I was a little bit disheartened by 
seeing that some people were really sorted and that I was struggling. But I was a very sort of passionate and explosive musician. Um, and I was frustrated because, like, when there were cello competitions, a cellist would come along and judge all the cellists. And there was a lot of comparison between how good their technique was and how perfect and whatever. And it was, in a way, not very much about the music. And this this bore out because when I did my first competitions across all instruments, um, so that suddenly it was about the music, because how do you compare a pianist with a cellist with a violinist? Um, I won. But I I didn't do as well. I mean, I did quite well, but I didn't do as well competing against cellists during that Royal Academy period. Um, mm. And But in fact, it was my next teacher because I wanted to go to Finland and study with Arto Noras, who's my big hero, only because I bought a record of, obscure record of his and no one had heard of him when I was like 14. And I knew from that moment that that is how I wanted to play and who I wanted to study with. So um, he was the one that put the you know, you, I'm not taking you unless you win everything kind of stipulation. Mm. And that was quite tough. <laughs> Did you have to start practising more then or like... Well, <laughs> when I went to him, um, and the only reason I got to study with him was because I went all the way to Paris to do an audition with a broken leg and he couldn't believe it, but he still didn't give me a place. But when someone dropped out at the last minute, he couldn't forget me. He just could not forget me. So he... I hadn't won everything. I won some things. I lost some things. But um, he just rang me up and took me at the last minute and I grabbed it. Mm. But when I arrived to study with him, he took me further back to to the beginning of cello playing than Florence Houghton mm. had, how to hold the bow, how to make a sound. And he said to me, you, you can't really make a sound and I'm not sure if I can teach you how to. I don't know. You know, it was, <laughs> oh, my goodness, it was shocking. But... So yeah. Did did you actually do because that sounds really hard. So did did you actually do what he said? Like, did you literally change your bow holes and change your whatever it was he wanted you to do? Because that's I, really hard, isn't it? It is hard. I I loved him so deeply. Um, his playing and um, I did absolutely everything he said. I mean, if he told me to flap my ear, I'd have gone home and not rested until I could have done it. And there were other students that didn't do what he said and they argued with him. And I must say, in a period of two years, they didn't learn that much. But I absolutely devoted myself. And it was humiliating because people were playing fancy pieces, concertos and difficult pieces, and I was playing open strings and simple little scales. Um, but after a period, I began to get it. And, um, you know, that it just it changed my life beyond measure, you know. Hmm. Were you um, were you a Christian at that point when you were at um, music college? No, and you know, having won various scholarships, and in fact, I won. A, I was given a scholarship to Finland as well, um, and uh, I think all his students were given scholarships. He was like a global figure in cello playing, and um, had a lot of clout. Um, so, I was at the height of my arrogant powers of selfishness, really, and it was very life was very much about me, and. Um, but my grandma, from her distant uh, position, prayed for me relentlessly. And I became a Christian while I was out there. I think it was about a year into my time out there. And it was shocking. It was absolutely shocking. Um, goodness me. And no one could believe it. I was this feisty person. And I had the ultimately humbling experience of suddenly meeting God and realising that I was an amoeba. <laughs> Compared, you know, I was nothing. And it's so humbling. But also then you discover after that that you're deeply loved and it changes your whole basis for your life and whether you feel secure and you stop, hopefully, it takes time to change, but you stop trying to prove yourself and trying to dominate and win everything and push everyone out the way and elbow people and be aggressive and try and get ahead and win the game. And that all eventually, it can take a long time, but it goes out the window. Um, mm. Yeah. Sounds like it could be quite a scary thing to change like that if you because you feel like you're trying to push your way to get what you want and, and, then, and then you need to trust God, God for that. It's true. I mean, when I've met people that I was at the Royal Academy with, I always want to apologise for them that I was this like 
super competitive pain in the bum, really. But they don't remember that. And that's nice, but they don't remember they weren't inside my head. So I knew what was going on inside my head and who I was. But I think I changed mm. enor enormously. And there were various examples of friendship examples in Finland of people that then sort of helped me in a way to see another way to live and think. And gosh, it was yeah. extraordinary. So um, I guess everyone's got things in their head, haven't they, that yeah, yeah. Aren't, aren't great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what, what do you think you sort of, what changed in your head? <laughs> I think um, the biggest difference between Christianity and, and so many other sort of states of mind is that many ways we go through life and we are kind of like me, 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 <clears throat> my life, my mortgage, my marriage, my status, my job, me. Um, and Christianity is about him. It's about Jesus, him, him, him. But he is also interested in how he made us. He made us talented, maybe, or in particular, everyone's talented in certain ways. And, you know, so he, he, he loves us to flourish in that sense and use those things. But that heart of humility, realising it's about him, changes everything. And <clears throat> it, it's not that you can change overnight, but there's a gradual process. Some things do change suddenly. Your mindset might change. But I, I've got a very good illustration that... Um, I played a concerto, it's actually the Massonet Fantasy for Cello and Orchestra, which is absolutely gorgeous and I love. I played it with a Swedish conductor and I thought it was great because he had a brilliant career before him. He was my age and my friend and I thought he would, uh, this would be very fruitful. But he actually didn't really talk to me much after that and a few years passed by and then suddenly he asked me again, maybe could have been five years even, I don't know, he asked me to play the same piece again, uh, and I went and did it. And he then came clean, and he said that the first time I played it, my playing was like a machine gun. It was fast, it was loud, it was impressive, it was... And he just wrote me off. He thought, there is no song in you, Gerard. There's nothing touching. You're just not singing. And he assumed that that was unchangeable. Uh, you know, you're a cold musician that's just trying to impress us and goodbye. Um, and uh, I'm sure he put it kinder than that, but that's, I know that's the truth. And But then when I went back this other time, he actually couldn't believe it because I was just like bursting with song and emotion and audience was crying and I was really touching everyone. And he said to me, what has happened in your life? And I said, well, I have learnt to worship you know, as I've worshipped God, he has just totally transformed my heart, transformed my playing, and I've realised what it's all about. And uh, that, that's it. That sums it all up, really. But it took a while. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that, um, because I've had I've heard you play lots of cello solos, and they're always really amazing. And people often cry when you play and things like that, or people are really affected. Um and so I was just wondering, like, if you can say anything about what's going on in your mind when you're performing, if anything, because mm. <laughs> you, are you actually worshipping God when you're performing or even conducting, I guess, in case King's Chamber Orchestra? Um, I, I totally worship God all the time, every note that I play and thank him and talk to him. And, um, you know, I'm. Uh, and I have my weaknesses is as a character. I'm not, I don't live a very balanced life. I mean, we might get to talk about that uh, later, but but um, it's not that I retreat and pray a great deal. My wife's very good at that. I don't do that, but I talk to God all the time, just simply all the time. And, but somehow that hasn't isolated me from people. I've always loved people. And I'm very um, trying always to read the room, trying to work out how to be the biggest blessing I can to all the people here. It might mean withholding my um, my outlook, my Christian faith or whatever, because they're, they're not in a place of understanding that or they've been hurt by the church or whatever. I'm, I, I love people so much that I would rather meet them on their terms of be actually genuinely be their friend, not even be their friend with an agenda because I want them to change and be like me or I just love people. And 
I don't know, I feel like fired up by God for that. So I, even choosing the music that I choose is starts with the people. And I've noticed that with um, many, many people out there trying to run groups and trying to do things. They start by trying to please themselves. Um, I've always wanted to play this piece. Mm. You know, the um, Lava Eruption by Rudebaker, um, which mm. is an American vegetable, by the way, and I've just made that up. But the point is that it's just, um, you know, people have got their things they want to do to please themselves. And maybe they're right to a, an extent, because if you're authentic and you're playing something you want to play, then authenticity speaks to the audience. But I'm always thinking about the audience. Who are they going to be? How will we take them on a journey mm. um, to really love the music, love us? And, you mm. know, and if they do, then we get to share a bit of our life and they want to hear it. They want to know that, you know, I've got a pet ferret or something, which I don't, by the way, but, you know, they want these details. Yeah. So um, maybe now that you're talking about KCO, um, do you want to, because it's not kind of just the average <laughs> chamber orchestra is it yeah. um would you be able to say how it came to be and then what it is now <laughs> yes um i had an early experience after music college or perhaps i was even no i think it was after music college where i played with the new english orchestra which was a huge family of orchestral musicians dancers singers um kind of people were called enablers if they were like husbands or wives who came along and they did things to help. It was a very big organisation and they would tour and do a, a a load of concerts in, say, Salzburg or somewhere. And they were a Christian, massive Christian organisation. They brought a message with their, um, their work. And at the heart of it was the visionary man, Nigel Swinford, who was like the most loving person. And it, it just inspired me so much. And I knew straight away that I wanted to do something. And... For whatever reason, the New English Orchestra rarely did things in London. And I thought, we need something in London. We really do. And I played fairly early on in my 20s with the English Chamber Orchestra. And there had been a few people that had become Christians in the English Chamber Orchestra. And that sort of was all part of me thinking, hmm, let's do something. And so I hmm. started experimenting with gathering people for concerts. I think the first one was in 1985. That was an experiment that was a bit nameless, but that actually was the King's Chamber Orchestra. I'd already had this vision for running a group that would be, number one, a Christian community, number two, play to a very high standard, the best possible standard. Um, um, but still, number one is the Christian thing. So I always mm -hmm. like to say, well, first and foremost, we are a Christian community. Um, yeah. So... And we don't. We have a. We do have a different vision from other groups, and there are plenty of other groups, and they've all got their strengths. Um, really, we're not a church orchestra, where we don't just um, do a concert to provide entertainment, and then someone slams a preach on it. We tried that. We didn't feel it was as authentic as what we wanted to do, which was to bring our own story through loving the audience and. Um, humour comes into it a lot. That was always there at the beginning, in a way, although the very first concert we did was pretty heavy. <laughs> we played <laughs> some really quite heavy modern classical music, and I look back at that and think, what were we up to? But we soon realised what would touch the audience. Um, and I think when you take an audience on a journey and you go back time and time again to a place, eventually you get to the point where you could actually play some really heavyweight music, and they will get it. Because we're mm. bringing a cultural journey as well as, a, as well as a spiritual journey to the audiences we cultivate. Mm. And we do prefer to cultivate audiences and go back and back and back and back, but we do one-offs as well sometimes. But the thing mm. sort of mushroomed over the years to the extent that we're doing so many concerts now. I'm like yeah. astounded. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think probably a lot, a lot of people sort of could organise a concert and then just no one comes to it. So, like, get, <laughs> how did you get an audience? <laughs> Isn't that um, the the question? If there was a formulaic answer, then everyone could sort their problems out, couldn't they? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I felt like I'd, we get people I've come along to our concerts to try and study what we're doing. And 
it's just happened very recently, and um, they they go away thinking played something lively, played something quiet, did this, did that, formula ABC, whatever. Maybe they write that down. I don't really know, but the bit that you can't replicate is quite how much we love our audiences. Um, I stand there and just completely love them, and I'm I'm prepared to be an idiot in front of them if that helps to be a fool to tell dreadful jokes and um, just make them smile and break the atmosphere really um, mm. I think at one point you you had one of your questions you wrote down was has anything not worked and mm, yeah. in a way I feel what doesn't necessarily work is when someone comes along who's really obsessed with classical music and they see that we're going to play Bach, Brandenburg Concerto so they listen to lots of different performances and historic performances and they think about the style and they study the score and they're just simply approaching it on an academic level and they're wanting to compare the way we do it. But we have gone back to the heart of Bach, who wrote the piece out of utter joy and community and loved everyone in the group. So everyone's got a separate part, it's a unique piece. And that was because he just wanted everyone to feel fulfilled we want to be fulfilled, we want our audience to, we're thinking about everyone. There is something in the heart of that that is missing when you purely approach music academically. Um, mm. So, you know, I think we've our strength is in reaching new audiences, or they could be churches, and the, the members of those churches are so busy doing what they do in church, running toddler groups and doing this, that and the other, and meeting the needs of the community. They don't get mm. a lot of culture, to be honest, maybe. They might go mm. once a year to a West End show, but we bring a breath of fresh air culturally and then also mm. spiritually. Mm. Yeah. Would you would you mind saying one one sort of fun thing that you've done with KCO that you've really enjoyed? Obviously, you don't need to say anything. You don't need to give away KCO's secrets no, on this all. podcast. No, not but... at all. So the thing I want to remember that I thought was hilarious is um, a time when we played we played the Sabre Dance by Kakaturian. And I explained to the audience that we were going to turn the whole thing on its head, um, the way people appreciate other people. Um, they didn't really know what I was on about, and we started the music. And it's there's three sections in this piece, and it's very lively, and there's a drum, side drum, and the orchestra's off there going, really firing at it, like, you know, it's, it's quite strong, it's a rhythmic piece. And then during that first section, instead of conducting the orchestra, I wandered off and got a packet of cornflakes. And I opened this packet of cornflakes. Um, I think this is before your time, Mary, isn't it? You don't actually remember. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember this, no, so I'm interested to hear. Yeah. So I opened this packet of cornflakes and I, I just opened it and then just strew cornflakes all over the front of the platform. It was very odd. And then the music stopped and we didn't go to the next section. We just stopped and... We put up a big sign that said silence, absolute silence. So people didn't know what, how to behave and they, were, they didn't get it. And they thought, oh, well, they wouldn't get it. So then I went into the audience and just plucked out two volunteers. I think I was quite brave because I hadn't pre-arranged all of this. And just plucked two, I went for younger volunteers and then got them onto the platform, gave them a hoover each. And that was all ready and prepared. And they had to hoover up the cornflakes. And then another sign came up while they were doing that that, that said, rapturous applause. And people sort of applauded. You know, they didn't go wild, but they certainly applauded. And then that was odd. And they went to sit back. We got rid of the hoovers. And then we went on with the middle section, which is more lyrical. And during this section, I went and got a baby toddler's high chair. And then I we had invested in an incredibly realistic rubber um toddler which we called Sam <laughs> and we popped him in the high chair and I opened a yogurt a large yogurt pot and I poured it all over his head and it dripped down his body and um I did this while the music was going on and the music stopped and another sign that said silence and people were just incredulous by now it was really quite entertaining and I then went and plucked two people out of the audience got them up there and I gave them each a packet of wet ones and they had to clean up the baby. Another sign came up, rapturous applause, and now the audience got it. And they rapturously applauded. They went wild. And then we did the third section, and then we actually took applause at the end. 
And I explained to the audience that the people that put the chairs out, that took your coats, that did the tickets, that made the food, that organised the building, they never got the applause. We just get the applause. It's not right. We need to <laughs> applaud all those tasks which are not seen and those people and appreciate them and we need to do it in our lives. And it was a, it was a beautiful message that I really feel went home. And I love that memory. It's one of my happiest memories of KCO. People did not get it at first, and then they got it. And what a thing to do in a concert. You know, we did the pieces of music that people applauded in the rest of the programme, but it was yeah. it was great. So, yeah, so um, that sounds like absolutely, un, I don't know, unimaginable probably to, <laughs> to a lot of people who might be listening. But um, if you know, if you've been to a KCO concert, you still think, that sounds crazy, but that's the kind of thing well, <laughs> that it, might happen in. <laughs> it would only happen in a in a, a publicised comedy concert, and in a way, we we do, we just bring a bit of everything to our concerts. And I like to start our programmes with music, but then also to lean on the garden fence and talk to people like I would anyone on the bus, or you know, mm. I, I, and put people at their ease. And I like to explain. Mm oh my goodness, you know, applaud when you want, don't worry about it, don't get sit there thinking, are we allowed to applaud now? Um, hmm. You know, whatever, I'd like, and I don't see that in concerts, I don't see them putting their audiences at their ease, so they shouldn't hmm. expect to make new audiences and build new audiences hmm. when they don't talk to them properly. Yeah. And, you know. And yeah, just just so in case anyone actually hasn't heard King's Chamber Orchestra when they're listening to this or hasn't been to a concert, so there is a Christmas tour or mm. winter, winter tour every year, and do we have like about twenty concerts or something each? Yeah, because something we do like two that. concerts and in each venue, so um, yeah. definitely that sort of number. Yeah, it's tremendous. So it's, yeah, so so there is quite a big audience. It is. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, so yeah, do you ever or have you ever suffered with um, like nerves? <laughs> well, I think I would suffer from nerves if I wasn't very well prepared, and as the years have gone on. Um, I have less and less time to play the cello. I'm I'm so full time in the admin of KCO now that it's very difficult to play the cello. But I don't know. Somehow I'm gifted to be able to pick it up and play. But I think I've got to a point now where I've got to play. I'm going to play a very decent couple of recitals in October. I've got to play mm. the cello now. So um, I that yeah. it makes me nervous if I'm not prepared. Um, if it's difficult music, mm. classical music. Doesn't ever make me nervous playing the KCO and doing improvisations and doing smaller pieces. I'm okay mm. with that, but I am also getting older, and you know you'd expect your playing and your body to decline. So if you have a good discipline and a way to play, a good school of playing, this mm. you should do some practice when you're older, and that's where I'm at now that I need to start doing that, or <clears throat> or stop. I mean, I could carry on organising KCO, but. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. So, but yeah, no. I, I was just wondering. I can't imagine you being nervous. Like, did you did you ever have nerves when you were younger? Um, like... I well, I try to remember. I maybe not. Not. No, I mean, always a little bit. The rush of adrenaline type nerves and the mm. the fear of the unknown and walking out. There's definitely mm. nerves. But mm. I can give you an amazing example that I went to America um, to do a concert and with um, orchestra. I've Several times I've taught on courses and I've done all sorts of things in America, but um, <clears throat> I was playing a concerto and I arrived and I was jet-lagged and the rehearsal went really badly. And even the conductor commented, you, you don't seem your normal self and, and so mm. on. I don't know why I did it, but I used my spare bow in st in that rehearsal. I had a oh. very beautiful French bow that I, I don't know why I did that. But anyway, um, I fell apart. I totally fell apart. And then I had the concert that night. And when the concert came, the audience was packed. And in the first piece that they played, um, the building shook with their applause. It was a magnificent piece. And... Oh, my goodness. So I stood on the wings and I lost it. And at that point, I I definitely wasn't capable of walking on and playing this piece. And I just wasn't. Um, and then a little thought um, popped into my head. 
and it was of my grandma and all her prayers of so many years and that she'd given up her musical career to bring up her family because she lost her husband in the war and she would have been an opera singer really and uh, she gave it all up and she prayed and prayed for me and it just as that thought came into my head I suddenly went back into the I want to worship God mode and I looked up and did I physically see this? Was it in my mind? Was it a vision? Was it a dream? Was it reality? For me, it seemed like a reality, but the, the actual concert hall was, um, there were there was a, several levels, a bit like an opera house where you've got your gallery and then one above and so on, it's like that. Mm. And as I was praying and, and getting my heart right with God in this crisis moment, um, the door opened behind the first level up and in walked an angel and just folded its sort of arms, wings, whatever, and stood at the back. Uh, it was like a person, really. Um, mm. uh, and uh, and then another door opened and another one came in and a number of angels appeared. And I was absolutely, this has only happened to me this one time, like mm. this, and I was completely and utterly overwhelmed with the greatness of God and and it was as if God was saying, I made you, you know, and I made you a musician. You know, one thinks of um, Eric Liddell, the runner, saying to his girlfriend, his future wife, um, God made me, but he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I love that. And that's how I felt in that moment. So all I wanted to do was please God and give thanks for my incredible cello um, and the opportunity to to play it so I went out there mm. and it was one of the best concerts I've ever given in my whole life which mm. makes me think the nerves and everything are all in your head and you've got to find a way of dealing with that and we mm. know statistically medically scientifically that faith is one of the greatest stress busters known to man so if you feel stressed mm. in your life faith can be a huge help and that in this it on its own should be enough to interest people you know hmm. fascinating that's quite a long Thanks. answer sorry no no that's fine <laughs> that's the point of this <laughs> um so actually yeah i think one of the the main reasons why i was doing this podcast um was to just ask people like is it worth it being a musician i mean is it a worthwhile thing to do and like can god use music um yeah what do you think i mean you just said i mean did you just say you thought this was a gift from god absolutely <laughs> but i think also music is not something that works very well unless you put your your life into it your emotions your thoughts mm. um it's just it's not just a mechanical thing sometimes there are there is the odd young person who's perceived to be immensely gifted and it's not really figured out that they're immensely gifted at the mechanics of, say, the piano, but they don't actually feel mm. anything. And that person will go on probably to have a crisis when they're funneled into it and they go off to music college and they can whiz around the piano, but they don't feel anything. It doesn't mean anything to them. Mm. Um, so one has to be quite careful, you know, to sort of identify the musical gift that will be more kind of the complete deal. Um, not to judge anyone who doesn't have that because, you know, there's just other things for different people and you want everyone to be fulfilled in their life. But um, it makes an immense difference. It made so much difference to me to become a Christian. So it, it warmed up my playing and caused it to be something that would touch people, which it never did when I was younger. So that was mm. a huge thing. And um, I remember an orchestra leader saying to me, what... Would, what difference would it make to my life if I became a Christian? And I said the same that I said earlier. I said, at the moment, this sounds a bit brutal, but he was a very good friend of mine and he really wanted me. He was frustrated. And I said, well, your playing and the way you see life is very much uh, all centred around yourself. So it's me, me, me. And that's the way a lot of people think. And with God, it's him, him, him. But it does somehow we benefit from reflecting God and who he is rather than just mm. being about ourselves. I mean, who mm. could say of the world, if everyone was like me, the world would be a great place. <laughs> no, <laughs> that is not happening. Um, and it, would, it isn't true. But when you reflect mm. God, 
Then there comes humility, heart, you know, compassion, qualities that you may not automatically have. Forgiveness. Sort out mm. your childhood. Forgive your parents, your family, your whoever it is you need to forgive. Your friends, your school. Oh, I've had to do a certain lot of forgiving of school stuff. Um, mm. And um, how amazing to come out the other end and feel magnanimous towards people again instead mm. of just secretly um, bitter. <laughs> Yeah, do you have any any more like stories about how how God has maybe like touched people, any specific stories through either like KCO concerts, just any stories that would be encouraging to share? It's, you can think the hardest thing about answering that is there are simply so many and hmm. we all we do in the orchestra is make ourselves available to God, we pray and worship and on we go and do it and we cannot do the things that happen. Only God can do that. Like the time when I thought, do you know what? I think we should play um, Moon River by Henry Mancini. So we went on tour and we did it. And concert after concert went by and we, and people loved it. And they thought, oh, that's so lovely. And I began to think, you know what? It's really lovely to press that nostalgia button because it, it just makes people feel so happy and so good. Um so it's lovely to do that anyway. But there came one concert when this guy came to me, absolutely just flowing with tears, and explained that the year before, his mum had died almost immediately followed by his father. And the grief of losing them both was just overwhelming. And he felt that it shouldn't have happened, or he should have kept one of them more. You know, he just felt like it, this shouldn't, you know you're powerless to change the situation but it shouldn't have happened and he was locked in his life and when we played Moon River which was his parents favorite song God himself touched that man and said I have taken them and they're safe with me that's what he felt and through just an avalanche of tears he was able to let go of his mum and dad and he left that concert free to move on and live his life you know, that is wow. absolutely marvellous. Somebody yeah. else once who had a global position in health research to do with cancer was sitting in one of our concerts and one of our violinists um, came and stood next to him when we improvised and we walk out. And as they were playing for him, he he was really somehow blessed. And, and as they were playing for him, the a business solution, a global business solution he'd been looking for years, popped into his head now that is extraordinary that wow. is extraordinary we had one concert where in the interval this very tall guy came and he was shaking he was just shaking and he, he walked up to someone in the orchestra and said i'm shaking <laughs> and the person in the orchestra said yes i know you're shaking do you want to know why and the guy said oh yes and this person in the orchestra rather boldly but they you know obviously felt this said this is our Father in Heaven, he's come to meet you. This is the Holy Spirit. Can I pray for you? And this guy received the prayer and was just astounded. You know, mm. but I, we can't make that happen. But we are a Christian mm. community and we invite God. And yeah, I think people might have the view that because all that sort of thing happens, I'm maybe Gerard is this super holy person and whatever, but that is absolutely not true. And one of my strengths is that I understand that God will work with us despite us being pretty horrible sometimes. <laughs> you know, mm. I'm so far from being perfect. Yeah, it does it does seem like God uses you quite a lot and like quite a lot of amazing things happen to you. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask you, like, you know, do you spend three hours in prayer every day or like... <laughs> I talk to um, God all the time. I don't do that mm. retreating and spending hours in prayer thing. I wish oh. I did. You know, I'd like, I'd like to have, lead a more balanced life and have more silence in my life but mm. um i just talk to god all the time and i i do grab friendship along the way i love going to work i go instead of doing a big shop in the supermarket up the road i go do lots of little shops so because it's a lovely little holiday to just go up the road when i'm working hard and then just go and buy a few bits and i always meet people i've had the life stories mm. of almost everyone that works in the shop to the extent that um the managers come to see me to say what what a lovely thing they think it is. I'm so nice to everyone. <laughs> I don't know that. Nice. But there we go. I mean, I know I have a certain boldness, but I know that 
if that were to go wrong, I would, it would, I would do something funny, and that would be fine. And in fact, I can't think of when it's gone wrong. I, I remember <laughs> seeing this sort of youngish guy in um, in that same supermarket and going up to him and saying, "Excuse me, um, but has anyone ever told you you look like Toulouse Lautrec, the historic French artist?" <laughs> <laughs> he thought it was hilarious. He wanted to know me. <laughs> wow. That's an interesting opening line. But... Very crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Did I tell you that this is called the Jar of Encouragement? Oh, no. That's, That's nice. the podcast name. Yeah. Because I've got a jar. Yeah. It's got my all my encouragements in there. Yeah. Because um, um, last year I was feeling a bit discouraged and, and thinking like, you know, is it worthwhile to be a musician? Or am I just, you know, doing something useless? And now I, anytime anyone gives like a specific encouragement, I put it in there. So you can choose one and, and I'll tell you what it says. Okay. Um, so you've got, you've got to say stop. Stop. Oh, what's that? Oh, this is interesting. Yeah. So it was a funeral that I played at. It's not, it's not like a... A church one it's just like a one that I was getting paid and it said um that what I was playing the lark ascending and it said some of the congregation saw a butterfly rise up out of the flowers on the coffin and soar up to the church roof while you were playing we are not joking and neither were they <laughs> so that's not particularly related to God necessarily but it's just like a really nice thing that made me feel <laughs> I love that I love that because yeah. butterflies are hugely symbolic you know they they only have very short lives but they live very very colorfully and i like that and i like a verse in the bible that says seize life eat bread with gusto drink wine wear colorful scarves people never think of that verse but it, there it is in the bible you know we should enjoy life but we're allowed to be quiet and enjoy our life from that perspective if that's who we are you know it's fine it's good but it's just that life is there to be to be colourful in its own way in different people's lives. I love butterflies. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, so were there, were there any of those questions that you felt like particularly that you had anything to say? You asked, um, is there anything you'd say to a younger version of yourself? Mm. Um, and then there's another interesting question about strings in worship. Um, mm. First of all, to my younger self, well, I mean, as I've got older and older, I've realised that I'm not sure I can say anything to my younger self, because mm -hmm. if I'd if I'd seen the problems I had and what I needed to come out of, the youngest version of me wouldn't have been listening. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wouldn't have taken that on board. You can't just go up to someone and say, I figured out what's wrong with your life. It's this, this, and this, and this. Solve that, and you're away. Well... The, you know, the part of growing up and having experiences and maybe even tragic experiences and suffering loss and all sorts, it changes you so you become more of a kind of listening person. It reminds me of, you know, some people feel it's their Christian duty to share their faith and that it might even work out. They might, you know, lead someone on to faith, but... Um, equally, they might be being deeply insensitive to the need for friendship that that person that they're trying to share with has, and they're not prepared to go the extra mile from them and be their friend and love them. And yeah. I'm definitely starting these days from that place where that's where I start. Um, so my younger self um, was a bit overbearing and a bit loud, and I'm actually learning more and more these days to be quieter and listen. Uh, but I can be loud and mm. I can be lively and I really don't like it when people introduce me in a social gathering or the party or something and just say, hi everyone, here's Gerard, he's so funny. I, that is my pet mm. hate. I like to sort of quietly emerge in a group and find a natural place um, and I might end up telling yeah. them all a hilarious story that causes everyone to just laugh but it's, I might not, you know, I yeah. like to be myself. So for, for my younger Self, I had a lot of issues that I was working through and for young people in general though I am so concerned for them because the world has changed so much and music is not valued in society I mean we're seeing mm. doctors striking and people striking to get more money to, in line mm. with inflation but we our wages generally in music haven't gone up a, a lot for decades really mm. um, and 
Um, I think it's it's going to be almost easier as a Christian musician to sense that you're called into this and you're going to do it come what may, but then mm. you've got to adapt. I mean, you've been spectacularly good at adapting, Mary, and sort of perceived the needs of society for live music in different occasions or whatever, mm. and you've been able to to create that for yourself and it's working. Mm. Um, that's not everyone's gift, and yeah. um, there just aren't enough entrepreneurs out there with a vision to heal society with wonderful social gatherings with live music you know mm. it tends to be exploitative what's done on yeah. the scale and we've got no vision to exploit anyone so we are mm. unusual but we have touched a spot and I want I want young people in the orchestra and we've got some and I want them to kind of learn what they can but then they might um, take their lives and be inspired by that and take them in a different direction and it might fit their generation better you know I'm mm. not kind of controlling about it yeah so did you um when you came out of music college did you pretty much just get a job in no, an orchestra no or the, I, I had an initial crisis because I'd become a Christian I thought could I mm. do this performing thing you know and impress everyone and it was all about me and I was I just gave up completely performing and I took a job mm. in a church as a church musician for a few years oh, but right. <clears throat> gradually through that process you know I did 50 recitals the first year and seven the second year and then stopped <laughs> and then after maybe five years I realized oh hang on a minute I am called to get out there and perform and I'd started my KCO experiments and off I went um, but mm. funny thing is I knew from the very beginning of KCO that it was something we would strike out into the world with and wasn't necessary, necessarily like a church orchestra that did services and whatever. We wanted mm. to bring our faith into the concert hall. Now, as it happens, churches are also concert halls and they're beautiful ones and we make ideal partners with churches because we have faith and because we do that. But we're not necessarily rocking up and doing services and, you know, proving that services can be top-notch or something like that with the music. No, that's not what we're there for. So um, I knew from the very start of KCO that we wouldn't be under, we wouldn't be fashioned by church routine and church life and church views on mm. culture and life. Mm. Mm. Yeah, do, do you have thoughts about um, how strings can be used in worship or classical well, instruments? Um... people generally are touched by strings um, intimately, like intimate music, beautiful music, gorgeous melodies and all this kind of thing. There's an intimacy. And I think where worship needs could well develop in churches is in intimacy. Hmm. So um, I will be talking hmm. about this in the autumn to a group of church musicians and um, suggesting that, you know, OK, so we can learn our Bach organ pieces and we can do them at the beginning and end of a traditional service great we can um have contemporary worship where we're providing an opportunity for people to get engaged in worship in a different generation different way sometimes that's quite loud it could do well with being quieter sometimes because i think um i think that the loud worship there is a place for it because somebody might feel like they could be anonymous in the middle of it nobody's yeah. looking at them and it's all there's a lot going on and they can just interact with god but equally, when worship is not so loud and you can actually hear people around you worshipping, that's so encouraging. You feel like you belong to a crowd of people that are worshipping. So in the contemporary scene, they've got something to learn about being quieter and allowing the whole group to encourage one another, like your jar of encouragement. And strings, it's more appropriate in quieter times. And you could have a string player on the platform with a band and it could be quieter and they could be mic'd up, but there is nothing like having musicians coming round and playing right by you and worshipping, mm. and that's what we yeah. do. Um, if anyone wanted to listen to um, King's Chamber Orchestra things, and they can go on Spotify, can't they? And they can find those um, the worship recordings, like when we go and stand behind people, but... Absolutely. It, but it's professionally recorded. Yeah. Um, so, so it's we, just like we, King's Chamber Orchestra on Spotify. Yeah, you'll only find a couple of albums on there, but we do plan to put up more things. Um, and with so many recordings that we've never done anything with, and 
I'm hoping in this next period we'll find the time and resources to put them out. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe there's someone out there that wants to help us. <laughs> uh, you know, but we, we are um, faithfully going on with our touring and uh, let's see what happens. Yeah. Well, thanks, Gerard. Um, and you have definitely been a big encouragement to me, like you've given me a lot of opportunities and opportunities to just meet the people in KCO as well who are similar to me, which mm. is really great to have mm. that community. So thank you and thanks for talking to us. Oh, happy days. God bless.